Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, August 4th, 2011. Uh, 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 uh. I always love those days when I'm on issues, etc., as well as do my program. It's like preparing two radio programs for the same day. It's just a smidge challenging, and I'm getting old, and... I don't know if I can juggle anymore. I'm beginning to wonder. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and there's folks who are being hurt, and and uh, not just psychological damage, but we're talking eternal damage. Uh, they're finding themselves attending a church that is, well, it has some semblance of of godliness, but the uh, pastor there denies the power of the Word of God and what true godliness is. As a result of it, they've got heresy or error or false uh, religion dressed up in religious garb, and then... Uh, when things run their natural course, the people who are part of this false religion die and find themselves in hell. It's really a, a big deal. Um, you know, I, I've made this, um, I, I, well, I've used this metaphor in the past, and I think it's worth repeating. Um, when when you're sick, when when you've got something wrong with you, you've got that ache or pain that, or that lump or that something that just isn't right about you, um, you know, you don't go to a witch doctor. You don't, <laughs> you just don't. Uh, when, in fact, if it's something serious like cancer or something like that, um, you know, we want second opinions medically and we want to make sure that the doctor that is caring for us, well, that he's board certified, that uh, he's actually been to a reputable, uh, a reputable uh, medical school and, uh, and that uh, he's got a good track record as somebody who knows what he's doing, because we all know that <clears throat> you go to a quack doctor, uh, you're actually going you're, you're gonna to end up worse than, rather than better off. The treatment that you're going to get is, isn't going to do nothing to really help you. In fact, it could probably seriously hurt you, even cause your mortal demise. Now, if we are so careful about who it is that tends to us when it comes to our bodies, which are, well, because of, you know, the, the fall, because we're dead in trespasses and sins, because the wages of sin is death, because all of us are dying, 
our bodies are mortal. They're, they, they're not going to make it for the long haul. And uh, in fact, each and every one of us has a date with death. If Christ doesn't return sometime soon, uh, we're all we're all worm food, uh, you know, coming down the line here. So if if we are that careful with somebody who's taking care of our temporal bodies, our mortal bodies, why on earth would you not exhibit the same, if not greater, care when it comes to your pastors because your soul is eternal and your fate is either eternal life or eternal damnation. You get what I'm saying there? So here's the deal. Why on earth would you want a self-absorbed, poorly trained, narcissistic, bipolar, entertainment-driven, didn't-really-grow-up-Peter-Pan-complex youth pastor type to actually be your head pastor? I, 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 why on earth would you risk that? I, I don't understand. I mean, seriously. I mean, it, it's what we're talking about here is the difference. If, if a, a good pastor compared to those guys is the difference between a doctor who's been to Harvard Medical School as opposed to somebody, well, who may have gotten his diploma from a diploma mill somewhere in Mexico City. You, you get what I'm saying? Um, and uh, so, folks, I mean, we are talking eternal, eternal uh, consequences here. So why on earth would you want a pastor over you who hasn't studied and showed himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, but rightly divides the word of truth is what the Bible says. Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you be rigorous? And I mean, extremely stringently rigorous in deciding who is qualified to teach God's word to the your, your local congregation it, it more rigorous than you would be with your doctors I, I don't understand it I just don't understand it I just I just absolutely just mind-boggling we've got a bunch of junior high mentality you know frat boys who've uh, who've taken over the pulpits in in uh, in West, in western civilization all in the name of being relevant hip and and so that we can quote grow our churches and over and over again we demonstrate by reviewing their sermons these guys couldn't you know, properly hermeneutic ex, well how do i put this they couldn't exegete their way out of a paper bag you get what i'm saying anyway yeah i i wouldn't trust my eternal soul to one of those wing nuts uh, you know, not even for a second, not even for a second. Yeah, I think that false doctrine is deadly and it's dangerous and it sends people to hell. So I, I would never, you know, have that person be you know, the pastor who's over me. I've never I would never attend a church where a guy like that was the person who was, quote, preaching and teaching. These guys are hirelings. They're not they're not actually shepherd, you know, shepherds under the, our good shepherd Jesus Christ, and they show that over and over and over again. Just something to consider. I'm, you know, <sighs> I'm just glad I got that off my chest. Yeah, you know, I feel better now. Yeah, I got it off my chest. I've said it before, but I'll, you know, I'll have to make that analogy again. I mean, you know, yeah, I think it's worth making. Okay, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. 
I would like, well, I've started to get uh, email. I've been uh, beginning to get email regarding Eric Dykstra. And um, I, I got one in particular that I want to read, but keep them coming because uh, Eric Dykstra is somebody that we are going to be, um, uh, well, mentioning and talking about from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith. He, he you know, he will, as long as he continues to do what he's doing, uh, we will be sure to cover what he's doing uh, as regularly as we cover like a Rick Warren or a Bill Hybels or a Perry Noble or a Stephen Furtick. I mean, somebody who has their own update music. I mean, that that kind of tells you that we, we plan on revisiting uh, Eric Dykstra. Why? Because uh, his stuff, what he's doing isn't isolated to himself. Uh, what he's done, he, you know, he is a true disciple, and I mean true disciple, of Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, uh, Ed Young Jr. and uh, and uh, Bill Cornelius. So, what he? I mean, he didn't come up with the stuff that he's doing. In fact, he's very uncreative. If if anything, he is a a good parrot. Uh, you know, you know, parrot. You know, like say Polly want a cracker. Polly want a cracker. <laughs> you know, you know, he's a great parrot of the things that he's learning from those guys, and so. Uh, you know, examining him, you know, and you know, shows you uh, just where, where the uh, teaching of uh, those guys is. Uh, well, what what kind of leaders it's producing. So, anyway, we'll take a look at that. We got so I got an email I want to read. Um, and uh, let's see. Uh, you know, it, 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 one of the things we talk about here at Fighting for the Faith. Um, I for past few years, I've 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 kind of tongue in cheek talked about the fact that there's there's a heresy season or the heresy hurricane season and i've made the claim for years that heresy hurricane season runs from uh september uh from uh, labor day all the way to the end of may to uh memorial day that that is that is heresy hurricane season why because that's when the seeker driven guys are well their beehives are the busiest that's when their creative teams are really cranking stuff out and uh, and so uh, I've somebody sent me a link to a video that Bill Cornelius put out that actually provides independent verification that my dates of September to May <laughs> yeah you got to hear Bill Cornelius uh, you'll <clears throat> have him independently confirm that uh, my dates for heresy hurricane season are correct and by the way this year's heresy hurricane season I'm I'm kind of you know, just forecasting, looking at how things are going uh, in the seeker-driven churches. We are going to have some pretty severe, uh, you know, level five hurricane, uh, heresy hurricane things blowing through the church uh, between September and, and the end of May of uh, that's coming up. So just yeah, I want you might want to go get some uh, plywood right now, so to board up your windows and. And uh, ride these things out. I'm just telling you, it's going to be epic. Um, let's see here. I got a Patricia King video entitled Come and Drink. Yikes. Um, and then we got a news story. Uh, Bishop Gene Robinson is warning uh, of spiritual arrogance towards homosexuals. So going to read that. <laughs> and uh, a follow-up story. Remember we talked about the uh, the, the guy who's making the uh, real housewives of the Bible? Um, well, um, apparently he's... Run into some legal trouble, so uh, it, it may I may even be a she, not a he. But we'll be uh, taking a look at the legal uh, hurdles that have uh, been thrown in front of the uh, this particular video video project about the real housewives of the Bible. I've got a biologos update I want to take a crack at, uh, time permitting, 
And then our sermon review, we're going to go down to South Lake, Texas, to Gateway Church. Robert Morris, uh, we're going to be listening to a sermon by him entitled, What's So Important About Worship? And uh, Robert Morris, uh, just so you know, is uh, the gentleman that Perry Noble invited to his church, uh, you know, a while, a few weeks back. And uh, Robert Morris uh, preached two Sundays in a row, basically there at New Spring, telling the folks at New Spring that their money is cursed. It's absolutely cursed by God uh, uh, until they redeem it. So, you know, every time you go and you work and, you, you know, you punch in your time card, you put in your 40 hours for the week, or if you're, you know, if you're working in retail and you have overtime and things like that, uh, overtime is tough to get in a down economy. But if you're, if you're actually working and getting overtime, you punch in your time clock, you submit your time card to your employer, your employer cuts you a check. Well, the monies that you are receiving in that check, they're all cursed. All of those dollars, they are absolutely cursed, according to Robert Morris, until you redeem them. And there's only one way to redeem those dollars, and that is to write a tithe check immediately. The very, 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 very absolute first dollar uh, uh, dollars that you spend have to be a tithe check off the gross, written to your local congregation, or your money is, remains under the curse. That's what Robert Morris taught. So we're going to be reviewing one of his sermons today about what's so important about worship. If he can't, under, I mean, based upon how miserably he handles the biblical text and, and finds things that are not actually in the biblical text as it pertains to tithing, it makes me wonder if he's even capable of uh, rightly handling God's word when it comes to the topic of worship. So, uh, yeah, we've got all kinds of stuff that we're going to be reviewing today. Make yourself comfortable if you are capable. Of course, we don't have a problem if you want to listen to Fighting for the Faith while exercising. You can do so. Um, or, you know, driving to work or whatever. Just uh, keep your eyes on the road. Don't do anything dangerous. Uh, keep in mind that uh, Fighting for the Faith has been actually proven to decrease productivity, so you got to keep that in mind. Um, you know, if if your boss catches you listening to Fighting for the Faith, he may have you turn it off because... <laughs> Uh, you know, he may have noticed a, a dip in your productivity. So with all of that in mind, let's dive into the program proper. And that means, uh, well, we got to take a look at some email. Okay, so, all right, I got an email from a gal by the name of Crystal. She lives in Indianapolis, Indiana. I've met Crystal. Although she's not a Lutheran. Um, Crystal writes, she says, Hi, Chris, I've been listening to the recent podcast about Eric Dykstra, and I also listened to the horrible X-Men sermon. Uh, I'm sorry that you had to listen to that. (laughs) She says, There's one thing that I am finding a lot of these seeker-driven pastors have in common. Their sermons are really just advertisements for the way they do church. For example, God thinks that blah, 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 blah is important. See this one verse that I am quoting out of context. That shows us that God values blah, 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 blah. That's why here at Seeker Driven Church, we have small groups based around your favorite sports team. (laughs) You know, you're right, Crystal. Um, Yeah. (laughs) 
I've, I, oh man, I've overdosed this. I mean, since uh, last Friday, I've overdosed on Eric Dykstra sermons, and I, I am, I am, I am, a, I'm afeard that I have may have done irreparable brain damage to myself in exposing myself to these sermons. Um, and you know, in a forthcoming edition of Fighting for the Faith, not not this week, you know, maybe end of next week or early the week after, I got to take a little bit of a break. I'll be doing a, a, a basically a, you know a review of the Jesus that Eric Dykstra believes in. Boy, he's an interesting Jesus, by the way. I'm not the biblical one, but very interesting Jesus looks a lot like and sounds a lot like Eric Dykstra. But uh, one of the things you're uh, I've noticed in his sermons in particular is just that. He spends quite a bit of time, carves out uh, on purpose as a main point in his sermons, like every single time, um, you know, bashing, spending time just absolutely bashing uh, traditional church practices. Ah, those traditional religionist churches, they do this and that, and that, and well, we don't do it that way, and then goes on to talk about himself for, you know, 20 minutes. But you're right. It's, it's um, the, always there seems to be an apologetic for why their innovations are the right things to be doing, and they spend a lot of time advertising the things that they're doing in their sermons. You're absolutely right. Uh, Crystal continues, she says, and they continue to talk about the church's small groups and other ministries. They don't come out and say uh, the way they do church is the best way. Well, Eric Dykstra might. Actually, he does. Uh, But they imply it in their sermon. They imply that they are much more in touch with what God wants. Yes, they do and have found this new and better way to have church. Yes, they do. But what did God do to the priests who brought strange fire? <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, yeah, I completely get what you're talking about with that um, that story. Um, some of the sons of Levi, uh, no, sons of Aaron, sorry, sons of Aaron, they were Le- Levitical priests. Um, they actually brought an unauthorized sacrifice of fire to... Uh, to God, I mean, it wasn't that the you know, <laughs> yeah. It's look it up. It's it's in the Old Testament. I'm doing this from memory, but uh, what happened is is that uh, you know you know God gave very specific instructions as to how He's to be worshipped and how the the tabernacle thing was supposed to work and the sacrifices and stuff like that. And uh, the sons of Levi, in a in an act of piety, I mean, it wasn't rebellion. They were they were actually. Being creative and innovative and offering a creative sacrifice to God that He had not asked for, and they offered quote quote you know quote strange fire you know uh, um you know uh, some kind of an incense offering that God had not asked for and uh, well it didn't go well with them I think I think they they got toasted they were pretty much killed by God immediately and uh, it, it did not go well with them. And so the thing is, is that all of these innovative practices, um, you know, they aren't found anywhere in Scripture. And it, and over and over again, they seem to be flipping things on its head. And that's one of the reasons why I keep, I always keep coming back to, what is it these guys are preaching and teaching? Is it correct handling of God's word or not? And, uh, you know, is it man-centered or Christ-centered? And, uh and, and you know, and really taking a look at you know whether this stuff is even appropriate uh, for a pastor to be doing. How you know what is what what is their belief regarding the duties and responsibilities of a pastor? And over and over and over again, these guys berate, belittle, bash, and and uh, tear into uh, people who would dare tell them the job of a pastor is to feed God's sheep and. Uh, 
and those who disagree with them, well, they, they get this t- that you know happens to them. That's you bad sheep. How dare you want to be fed? We've got goats that we need to entertain. We've got more important things to be doing. So, yeah, that's one of the reasons why I, I keep coming back to that. So good uh, good email, Crystal, and uh, thank you for uh, chiming in. Again, I'm, I'm still, I mean... It's still early, but please, 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 please. I'm, I'm, I'm truly um, interested in your thoughts and feedback regarding the uh, Eric Dykstra programs that we recently did. Would love to get your feedback. Okay, um, let's see here. I don't have, um, I do not have well music to go along with this, but the uh, somebody on my Facebook wall sent me the uh, this YouTube video, and it's it's called "Back to Church Sunday" by Bill Cornelius, and. Um, and Bill Cornelius is the um, self-help life coach of Bay Area Christ, uh, Fellowship in uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. I've been in the room a couple of times with Bill Cornelius at seeker-driven church planting type conferences and other things. Um, and uh, and so here's Bill Cornelius, and this is independent verification that heresy hurricane season runs from September to May. Here, here we go. Cornelius, I'm pastor of Bay Area Fellowship in Corpus Christi, Texas. You know, I think every church is called to reach young church people uh, in their community. If you're not doing something really big like back at church Sunday in September, you're an idiot. Okay. <laughs> okay, so if you don't have a back to church Sunday uh, in September, uh, how did he put that? Let's see. Let me see if I... I, I don't, I don't want to take him out of context. If you're not doing something really big like back to church Sunday in September, you're an idiot. Okay. Yeah. How do you really feel, Bill? And the reason I say that is because September is the number one growth time of a church. There's a window, in America especially, September to May. And so it begins in September. So if you want a full growth run... September to May. There you go. Heresy hurricane season. Independent verification. From a seeker-driven pastor, then I'm spot on. You got to hit it hard come September one, and not only you see new people coming, you see people who used to come to your church get reinvigorated to come back again. You got to give them a reason to come back, and they will. You know, everything comes down to this for us. We believe that we should make Corpus Christi, the city where we are, the hardest place to go to hell from. Yeah, we've heard that a thousand times from you guys. we got to make Corpus Christi the hardest place to go to hell from. Well, if that's really your goal, don't you think you ought to spend a lot of time preaching the word in context? And, and preaching Christ and Him crucified for our sins. And preaching the gospel not just to uh, non-believers, but to... Uh, believers as well and so and the way we do that is making sure that everyone knows they have an opportunity to hear about the love of god in our church the church attender or member who's been coming to church for a long time will think suddenly when new people come to church it's not normal but according to the new testament what's not normal is for it to be the same people all the time if your nursery's not overflowing and you're lacking workers that means you're not growing if the parking lot's easy to get in and out of it means you're not growing so all of those problems are actually see yeah there you go you can tell whether or not you have a healthy church based upon whether or not it's easy to get in or out of your parking lot strengths to your church if you're out of workers and you're having to add services and you're running out of seats. notice it's all numbers it's all qu- uh, quantity not quality and yet quality is the number one indicator really whether or not you really truly have a healthy church by the way i mean <clears throat> I just want to point this out. Um, there's a uh, there's a website that I <laughs> that I track, okay, and it's a, it's a website that publishes and regularly updates the um, the well the um, the weekly attendance figures 
for all of like the all the, the major mega churches in the United States. And uh Joel Osteen, I mean, he seriously, Joel Osteen is number one. He he, he on average they get forty six thousand, forty six thousand people coming through uh Lakewood every single week. Now Here's a question I have. Um, is there any reason to believe, based upon the pablum, the false doctrine, that uh, uh, that Joel Osteen is preaching Sunday after Sunday, that it's God who's really the one who's increasing the numbers there? Is this really a move of God, a blessing of God? Well, no, absolutely not. Just because you have... Uh, it's just because it's difficult to get into your parking lot or you have a huge amount of people coming week after week to your building to hear your pastor teach, that does not that is not an indicator as to whether or not God is blessing that particular growth. I mean, Americans are just absolutely foolish if that's the way they determine whether or not something is really from God. The way you know if something's really from God is if the pastor's rightly handling God's word pointing you to Christ Jesus and him crucified for your sins is not engaging in tomfoolery, if you would. So, yeah, these seeker-driven guys, I mean, um, it, it, the, the kind of the way of putting it, um, um, if you would, think of them as ointments, okay? Seeker-driven guys and their, uh, and their sermons, well, they're like topical ointments. You know, you, you put it on your skin, and that's about as far as it goes down, but good biblical preaching cuts through to the heart and digs down deep into your soul. And the topical ointments that these guys are trying to apply to the sin problem in the world, actually, they're just arrogant frat boys who think, oh, yeah, I've got the slogan, I'm going to make Corpus Christi the hardest place to go to hell from in the whole country, in the whole world. Whatever. Just be quiet, stop talking about yourself, and actually open up the text and preach the text, please. Anyway, so so there you go. Independent proof that uh, <clears throat> heresy hurricane season uh, runs from September to May of every single year. And, uh, well, before we go to the break, I, let's, um, let, let's, let's do this. Yes, this, yeah, that could be only one thing. We're going to be getting an update regarding the Patricia King gang. And wouldn't you know it, this time around, it's actually going to be Patricia King regaling us with a interesting <clears throat> thing that she's going to say. And, uh, well, probably it's best if I let her do the talking. Uh, here's Patricia King. Just before going into this uh, segment, um, our whole studio got together and all of our workers and we were just basking in the glory. And so right now... So you were baking your brain, got it? I feel completely drunk in the Holy Ghost. Right, yeah. Where in the Bible does it tell us that we can get drunk in the Holy Ghost? Hmm? And I can feel the dew of heaven coming down. and that's... Uh, ew. Uh, You might want to get your building checked. Um, that may not be the dew of heaven. That that could be mon- you know fungus and mold spores uh, in your building. Although you know you guys are in Phoenix, so I mean it's highly unlikely. But maybe you, you know your air conditioning unit needs to be looked at. Have you ever heard of Legionnaires' disease? Yeah, I'm telling you that dew of heaven stuff. You may actually have a biological hazard going on in your studios there. That's what I sense. 
is coming down upon you right now. So just lift your hands up into the glory. You want me to lift them where? Um. All right, look, looking around. No, I, I'm not seeing any glory that I can lift my hands into. What are you talking about? And just close your eyes and just drink of the goodness of God. Jesus said, if anyone's thirsty, just ask me. Just come and receive drink. And right now... And I don't think he was talking about that he'll give you an intoxicating spiritual cocktail. <sighs> oh, you're being filled with a real fresh touch of the Spirit of God. The dew of heaven, the essence of God's presence is coming down upon you. Yeah, I don't think you know what you're talking about. Now. No, not even now. Sorry, no, not feeling it. Nothing. <laughs> Must not be working. And I feel like the Lord's saying that that uh, you're going to accelerate in your ability to receive uh, revelation from the Lord. Ah, okay. Oh, wow. So I'm going to have accelerated ability to receive revelation. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I don't receive that anyway. Um, that fresh manna from heaven. Uh, fresh manna. What are you talking about? You know, um, I see someone who's been very faithful with reading the Word of God every day in the Scriptures, but you've been missing that real rhema word. Well, in the name of the... <laughs> you've been missing the rhema word. This woman does not know Greek. Um... Of Jesus Christ, I loose the power of that rhema to you right now, and I believe you're going to start getting that real... Really? Yeah, she didn't lose nothing. She doesn't even know what a rhema word is. By the way, when somebody talks about a rhema word, now in the Greek, there are two primary Greek words that uh, that the scriptures use, uh, which are both we both end up being translated as word in our English New Testaments. Now, the first word is logos. Now, that refers principally to the total inspired word of God and to Jesus, who is the living word. So, you know, um, that's the idea here, is that Jesus is the Word of God, John 1.1, 1, 1, or Luke 8.11, or Philippians 2.16, holding fast to the Word of life, or Hebrews 4.12, that says, for the Word of God is living and active. Now, that's that's the Greek word behind that, is logos. Now, what these uh, crackpots like Patricia King try to say is that, oh, but there's a different kind of word. There's the rhema word, and apparently that's somehow God speaking directly to your being or some kind of literal thing like that. But actually, that's not what that word. Let me give you some examples uh, in the Bible where we have the word rhema. And for instance, we have that in Luke chapter 1, verse 38. It says, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your Word. Now, she was speaking that because the angel Gabriel appeared to her and gave her a direct revelation, okay? So um, the idea here is that rhema, to just to completely give you the, the skinny on it, it means like an utterance, some, uh, individually or collectively or specifically, okay? So uh, if you know, right now, I'm speaking to you. You're not, this isn't reading that you're doing. I'm speaking to you. So you can say, Chris said on his program that the words that he used are these, okay? I uttered these words, and so you can say that's a rhema word, okay? Let me give you another example. Luke chapter 3, verse 2. During the high priest of, of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God, the utterance of God, came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. 
or uh, uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 5. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Jesus gave an utterance, hey, let down your nets on the other side. And Peter's like, no, come on. All right, but at your word I'll go ahead and do that. So uh, when you hear a, a charismatic Pentecostal type or a wingnut, uh, you know, like uh, Patricia King, talking about releasing a rhema word or whatever, they don't understand what that is. And I, I, you know, Patricia King has not studied Greek, and she does not know what she's talking about. And uh, and she's, you know, over-spiritualizing uh, the word rhema by about 400%. So anyway, um, let's finish this off. Here we go. A beautiful, precious word of the Lord coming to your heart. And uh, you're just going to love it. So get your journal ready because it's going to come big time. Yeah. Uh, no, it's not. <sighs> there you go. Patricia King. Yeah, she's always good for a laugh. Anyway, um, all right. We are up on our first break. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there. Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally, we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fears, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time 
end-time judgments about to be unleashed on planet Earth. Don't miss out on getting both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand-new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural. For a donation of $25, shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Call or write today. Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Right, we're back. Warning, people who are telling you they're giving you a Rama word don't know what they're talking about. Avoid them like the plague. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and we truly do depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions to keep bringing this important radio program to you and to the world. Yeah, especially during the lean, <laughs> dry, deserty summer. <laughs> uh, yeah, the summer months are just not a good time for us uh, financially. It's it's uh, it's a mess. <laughs> anyway, if uh, if you would like to have mercy on us and and uh, make it so that our our summer months are not quite as lean as they are currently are, then uh, you can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And uh, when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button. Or, if you'd like, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Dun, 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 dun. So from the uh, Christian Post, headline reads, Real Housewives of the Bible Violates Trademark, Bravo says. That would be Bravo TV. <laughs> and this is one of those times where I'm sitting there going, Why did I go? I'm so happy that they're flexing their trademark muscle. Yeah. <laughs> I, it drives me crazy when Christians try to make uh, the Bible or Christianity relevant by ripping off somebody else's, uh, you know, their trademark or their... Uh, their knowledge-based product, or their their what is it, was it called? Um, intellectual property. Yeah. So, 
<clears throat> this is written by Nicola Menzi of the uh, Christian Post. Here's what she said. Bravo is none too pleased with the DVD spinoff of their popular reality show series created by web-based evangelist and author Ty Adams. The network claims Adams is violating their trademark on the Real Housewives name. Adams' DVD series, Real Housewives of the Bible, is in no way affiliated with the network other than its show being the source of inspiration for the Bible-oriented series. Quote, Bravo is in no way associated with this project, a uh, network uh, representative told celebrity website TMZ. Adams, founder and CEO of Heaven Enterprises, launched the scripted DVD series after getting fed up with the negative portrayal of relationships on reality shows like Bravo's Real Housewives. Well, if you get fed up with it, just stop watching it. <clears throat> Sorry, just too logical. Anyway, um, anyway, and VH1's Basketball Wives. Haven't seen... Hey, it's one of, one of those times where I am so thankful I can say I have never seen Real Housewives and I've never seen Basketball Wives either. It's uh, one of those, you know, it's serious. I mean, back in the day, you remember when uh, presidential candidates, um, they could never have, never could have admitted to actually inhaling um, uh, marijuana. Um, and now I think you actually have to say that you've done it. Otherwise, no one, you don't have any credibility. But um, you see, here's the deal. So they've never – so what was Bill Clinton's thing? He didn't inhale. I didn't inhale it. So in my particular case, I've never I've never seen even a, like 10 seconds of Real Housewives. But then again, I don't watch a lot of television. And it's been a while since I've watched VH1 too. So I'm just completely in the dark and – happy as a clam they say ignorance is bliss and you know what i'm living proof i'm <laughs> i'm completely ignorant of what goes on in those programs and i'm happy because i don't know <laughs> anyway she says the shows are on are high on drama but lacking in offering real solutions to the problems portrayed in the series okay yeah a quote i wanted to showcase women who are having issues in relationships, just like you see on those reality shows, because this is real life. Adams told Fox News, we're not afraid to face those tough issues. We wanted to find the hard issues and see how people work this out, where you can get uh, really, where you can really grasp the essence of what love and true love in relationships is. Adams' DVD series features several characters based on biblical women who use faith to navigate their way through the rough patches encountered in their relationships which is kind of like missing the whole point of those passages. Anyway, according to Adams, the Bible is the best place to find solutions on life's troubles, especially when it comes to love and relationships. You know, I I just don't see that. <laughs> um, I, yes, I, I, well, okay. In the past, in the epistles, like, you know, Ephesians and, and other epistles, there's some good practical gospel exhortations to how our relationships are to look in light of the cross of Christ. I just wonder if um, this uh, trademark infringing uh, DVD series is um, it really focuses in on the cross of Christ because all of the, all of the quote application sections of the epistles are the therefores of the gospel. And in, uh, when you read those uh, epistles in context, um, the gospel isn't missing. It's front and center. It just, um, one of the problems I see that, you know, people over and over and over again, they strip mine the Bible to find those principles that they can apply to make their relationships better. 
um, and then they unbuckle it from the gospel. Um, and uh, that's a problem because uh, the fruit of the spirit does not isn't isn't produced in your life by applying principles. It's just not. Um, yeah, uh, no, the fruit of the spirit is is produced in your life through. Uh, the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins and the therefore of how we live our life is always hooked back into the gospel. And over and over and over again, these people who you know kind of take the Bible, strip mine it for life principles that can be applied, uh, the, the gospel is the thing that is considered to be, well, the thing not worth focusing on. Um, it's as if the gospel is mud and the relationship advice is gold. And so you know they 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 power wash the, uh, the 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 Bible and the and the mud that's the gospel gets washed away and what's left is the ah the principle that needs to be applied to solve this particular problem, that is a bad bad really bad awful convoluted twisted way of looking at scripture, the gospel the gospel, the gospel is the gold. It's the center. It's the substance of the scripture. It's all about Christ and what he's done for us. And the therefores, they cannot be unhooked from that because um, when you unhook them from that, you lose Christ and you lose the gospel. Anyway, anyway. <clears throat> so she continues, if you want to find out about love, you go to the original manufacturer. You go to the blueprint. God himself is love, and he understands relationships more than any of us, and he understands how love operates more than any of us because he is love. Adams uh, dishes sex and relationship advice online and has written books on the topic. She describes herself as a bold ram's horn approach to lifestyle sex and relationships. I don't even know what that means. It is unclear if Bravo plans on making any bold moves of its own over the trademark claim. I hope they do. Uh, quote, we vigorously protect our trademarks and take appropriate action when necessary. The unidentified network representative also told TMZ. TMZ speculates that such a statement may indeed mean the network plans on taking legal action against Adams over the Real Housewives name. And all I can say is I really, truly do hope that they do. Yeah, it's tired of Christians always ripping things off from anyway next story uh, also from the Christian Post this is a doozer of a headline by the way <clears throat> let me read the headline Bishop Gene Robinson warns of spiritual arrogance towards homosexuals hey arrogance arrogance uh, you know hang on a second here I, I I need to do a word search um, one of the uh, websites that I go to from time to time is the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary website. You can find it at m-w.com. I'm just going to type into arrogance. Okay, here we go. Arrogance. Let's, let's look at this uh, definition of arrogance. An attitude of superiority manifested in an overbearing manner or in presumptuous claims or assumptions. Okay. So uh, that's, that's the definition. I want to key on a, on a part of this definition. Okay, so here we go. Arrogance is defined, according to Merriam-Webster's, as an attitude of superiority manifested in an overbearing manner or, or, it's not, it's not both, it's or, or in presumptuous claims or assumptions. For instance, um, you are being arrogant if you are making presumptuous claims or presumptuous assumptions, Okay. Um, so, okay, so now let's let's go back to this news story from the Christian Post. This is, by the way, written by Christine Tomasos, Tomasos, who is a Christian Post contributor. Uh, the Episcopal Church orchestrated an adult faith 
forum to discuss issues surrounding homosexuality and its role in Christianity on Sunday. Okay. Bishop V. Jean Robinson, ordained in 2004 as an openly homosexual clergyman, spoke to a group of 50 people about the importance of heterosexuals avoiding the adoption of superior attitudes toward, quote, gay Christians. An attitude of superiority. Um, toward gay Christians. Hmm. So let me see if I, so, so if I'm correct, then his assumption, his belief is that gay Christians are every bit as Christians as heterosexual Christians. And that would mean in his case, practicing homosexuals. They are, well, I mean, they're just as much as Christians as anybody else, Right. So that's his assumption. Now, the question is, okay, based upon the definition of arrogance, okay, an attitude of superiority manifested in an overbearing manner or in presumptuous claims or assumptions. So here's the question I have. Um, is V. Jean Robinson um, guilty of presumptuous claims or assumption? Are his claims presumptuous? Because he's assuming, by the way, that he's correct, Okay. That he absolutely believes that Christians can be practicing unrepentant homosexuals and that God embraces this and it's no big deal. That's his assumption. But the question is, are his assumptions presumptuous? Okay. If they are presumptuous, then actually he's the one guilty of arrogance, not Christians who are heterosexuals, who say that homosexuality is a sin. So, I mean, it, it, again, definitions matter. Definitions matter. So, Let's see here. Um, here's what here's a quote from Gene uh, Robinson. Quote: I know Jesus to be the Son of God, but what a small, limited God we would have if that was the only manifestation. Weird thing for a bishop to be saying. Uh, Robinson said, "Quote: I think Christians should stay away from spiritual arrogance and show more love, mercy, zeal, and zeal for justice." Weird, because, I mean, he's basically assuming he's right. He's assuming he's right, and if you disagree with his claim, then you are actually guilty of spiritual arrogance. And you need to stop doing that and show more love and mercy and zeal for justice, according to Gene Robinson. So who's the, who's the one being arrogant here? Anyway, let me continue. Although Robinson married a woman in 1972 and had two daughters with her, he later divorced and then openly admitted his homosexuality in the 1980s. In 1988, Robinson met and moved in with his homosexual life partner, Mark Andrew. After being elected to become bishop in the Diocese of New Hampshire in 2003, Robinson received death threats. Although he was later granted the position, Robinson spoke to the Episcopal Church of the Advent in Louisville, Kentucky, about the uh, trying times that God helped him overcome. Now listen to this, quote, I just knew my life in the church was over, he said. At that time, there was no openly gay person serving at my diocese, but I felt God calling me to out, and God was there every step of the way. Let me, again, let me read this, the relevant sentence. Quote, I felt God 
calling me to out. Outing is a is is a thing. You know, you know, homosexuals who come out of the closet. So he believed that God. He felt that God was telling him to come out, and that God was there to help him in every step of the way. Okay. Um. So. Uh, again, let me go back to the definition of arrogance from the Merriam-Webster's website. Arrogance, an attitude of superiority manifested in an overbearing manner or in presumptuous claims and assumptions. Okay, So here we've got Gene Robinson warning everybody about spiritual arrogance towards homosexuals. But the question I have is, don't you think it's awful presumptuous of him to assume that his quote feelings were actually from God, and that God, the you know the the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, actually was the one t- calling him to come out as openly gay, and that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the the God of the Bible, was there to help him every step of the way. It was there, and it was God is the one who's behind him, and this is a man who divorced his wife and the mother of his two daughters, so that he can go into a relationship, an open relationship with his, quote, life partner, an open homosexual relationship. Well, okay, well, well, here's the deal. How on earth are we to decide who's right? Hmm? I mean, I, I mean, was it really God who helped him come out? Or was he? Is he just being presumptuous? Because here's the deal. I mean, I've never met the God of the Bible. Have you met him? Have you had Starbucks with Jesus down at you know at, you know, at your local Starbucks? I mean, have you had a latte or a mocha with him? Have you ever, ever chatted with him? Um, can you tell me exactly what color his eyes are? Um, I've never met the God of the Bible. Never. Ha- I have not had a face to face meeting with him. I'm ha- I'm going to have one because he is the true God, um, and you will too someday. Um, but uh, here's the deal. Um, God has spoken about homosexuality. God has, in fact, he hasn't done it ambiguously. He's actually spoken very clearly about homosexuality. And would you like to know what he said? Okay, so here we go. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, written by the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, did have a face-to-face meeting with the risen Jesus Christ. He is an eyewitness to Jesus' bodily resurrection from the grave, okay? And before he had that face-to-face meeting with Jesus, he was a persecutor of Christians, and he murdered them, okay? And after he met with Jesus, he was a, he was a believer in Jesus, and he boldly proclaimed uh, he proclaimed the word of God and tell, told everybody that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's God in human flesh, and that you need to repent and be forgiven of your sins by uh, by virtue of his shed blood on the cross. So the Apostle Paul actually, well, he he did have a meeting with Jesus. And here's what the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, he says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Hmm. Um, 
First Timothy chapter one, starting at verse nine, the apostle Paul also writes um, about uh, this topic. Again, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a man who did have a face-to-face meeting with the one true God says this, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and for the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So, I mean, by the way, I can quote other passages, but I'm, those those two are pretty clear. And so let me come back again uh, to the definition of arrogance laid out by um, Merriam-Webster's. Uh, you can find this at m-w.com. Type in arrogance into their definition box, and here's what it'll come up with. Arrogance is an attitude of superiority manifested in an overbearing manner or in presumptuous claims and assumptions. Now, um, Gene Robinson claims that he felt that God was the one telling him to come out of the closet and to admit to being a homosexual, and he thinks that God was the one who was there to help him every step of the way. But don't you think that's awful presumptuous of him? Considering the fact that God has already spoken regarding homosexuality, and it's clearly a sin. In other places, it's an abom- It's clearly described as an abomination before God. So um, here's the deal. Why on earth should I believe that God is the one who helped Gene Robinson out just because he felt that it was God? Um, don't you think his feelings are presumptuous and built on faulty claims? In other words, Gene Robinson really is the one who's being arrogant here, not Christians who bend the knee to God's word and say, listen, God's spoken about this, and homosexuality is a sin to be repented of and forgiven, and that God is calling all sinners, heterosexual and homosexual, to repentance and the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ shed blood on the cross. To say that somebody is an unrepentant homosexual sinner, well, that's like saying that, hey, you know, um, I, you know, I can go and be a, an unrepentant thief for a living. That I'm going to go out and I'm going to steal. I'm going to rob banks for a living, and that it's arrogant of because God, I felt in my heart that God was telling me to go rob banks for a living, and uh, and then and, and then later to you know to come out and and let everybody know that I that I was a bank robber. That doesn't make any sense. Christians are called to repent of their sins, not turn the grace of Christ and his shed blood on the cross into a license for sin. Clearly, using the real definition of arrogance and clearly using God's word as our standard for what it is that God demands of us, um, it's not Christians who are pointing out that homosexuality is a sin who are being arrogant. It's Gene Robinson who's being arrogant because of his presumptuous claims and assumptions regarding God that are clearly, clearly contradicted by what God has already revealed. All right, we are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP t- walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to be heading down to Texas. Home of big belt buckles, big cars, and big churches. And Robert Morris, who claims your money's cursed until you give the very, 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 very first 10% to his church. (laughs) The Bible doesn't teach that, but that's what he says. Look at the bad and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's today's talk comes to us via Gateway Church, South Lake, Texas. Uh, Mr. Robert Morris presiding. The name of the sermon is What's So Important About Worship? Now... uh, now, listen carefully to this sermon. Um, he opens the Bible. He reads some passages from the text. In fact, the sermon begins with him telling you that you need to like mark two different places in the Bible. You need to open up to this passage in Exodus, and you need to open up to one of the Psalms. But the, the, <laughs> the question is, is he actually teaching what the Bible teaches in these texts? Or not? <laughs> and, and then to make things worse toward the end of the uh, sermon we steer into um, well apparently dreams and visions and his own personal revelations I'm not joking so watch this one I mean I mean, this is just pious deception I have no other way of describing it 
And uh, while we're at while we're on the topic of worship, I might actually read to you something from the late Owl Berry, who was the uh, president of the Missouri Synod. And uh, he, you know, he actually has some theses that he wrote regarding worship that I think are actually in accord with what God's Word teaches. So that'll be our bonus material for today. So without any further ado, let's kill the music here. Uh, here is uh, Robert Morris and uh, his sermon, What's So Important About Worship? Here we go. It gets to me, all right? All right, I want you to turn to how many passages of Scripture? Two passages of Scripture. Exodus 3. And Psalm 73. Go ahead and turn there if you so got it. So open your Bible to Exodus chapter 3 and then put a marker at Psalm 73. All right? Exodus 3 and then put a marker at Psalm 73. And here's what I want to preach to you about today. What's so important about worship? Okay, I'm going to stop. Gonna so st- obviously if you're taking... Hello, there. stop. There we go. <laughs> I hit the button, but it took a minute for the computer to go, hey, uh, you want me to stop the audio? Yeah, I would. Please stop it. Okay, I'll just kind of get to it. There, it stopped. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so um, here's the question I have for you, okay? Let's take a look at Exodus chapter 3. Before he ever gets to the text, let's read it, okay? It's a fantastic text. Um, But here's the question I have for you. Is Exodus chapter 3 about worship? Does Exodus chapter 3 lay out principles that we need to apply to our life as it pertains to worship? Okay, Uh, let me read to you. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Okay, now let me give you a little bit of backstory. If you're not familiar with the Moses story, uh, Moses was born during a time when the uh, the pharaohs of Egypt did not remember what Joseph had done. Um, you know, in saving the lives of uh, not only the Egyptians, but the whole Mediterranean world uh, during the great famine, the seven-year famine that God predicted would come uh, to pass. It did come to pass, and uh, Joseph, uh, one of the sons of uh, Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, uh, was uh, responsible. God used him to save the whole world. I mean, no, no kidding. I mean, well, the, the, that part of the world at that time. Okay, so uh, 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 time passes. Uh, it's been a long time, and the pharaohs don't remember that. And uh, and the Hebrews who were living in Egypt at that time in the land of Goshen, uh, well, they ended up being enslaved by the pharaohs. And Moses was born during a time when the pharaohs were ordering the uh, the Hebrews to kill their sons. They can have babies as long as they're bo- uh, they're not boys. If they're girls, they can live. The boys, you have to kill them. And so Moses's mom, uh, she had you know she has Moses. And, uh, and, uh, you know, she puts him in a basket because she's supposed to kill him. And wouldn't you know, Pharaoh's daughter, uh, you know, finds him in, in the Nile, raises him as her own son. And well, things kind of progress. He realizes that he's a Hebrew. He kills an Egyptian, uh, taskmaster and flees for his life. Okay. So, and now Moses is old. I mean, a man who's, you know, on the lamb, he's, uh, if it, if they had television back then, it would have been uh, Egypt's most wanted. Moses would have been on like the top of the list as, as one of Egypt's most wanted. He's a fugitive murderer. Okay, and with that, we pick up the story. So uh, Exodus chapter three verse one. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. By the way, he got married while he was on the lamb. Uh, the priest of Midian, and he and he led his flock into the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord. Uh, this. 
Um, when you hear the term the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, many times this is a uh, it's an epiphany. It's a it's a, it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. And so the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He said, he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now I'm going to stop right there. Now, having read this passage, you know, you get the gist of what's going on. This is God's calling of Moses, commissioning him to go and and do something, you know, to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt and bring them to the promised land. This is the commissioning of Moses. Is this, did God, the Holy Spirit, inspired this passage of scripture to be written as a as an instruction to us regarding worship of God. Now it does say that that the sign that they you know the, the, one of the signs is is that when he brings the people out of Egypt that they shall serve God on this mountain. But is the purpose of this text to um well instruct us about worship. I would make the claim, no, not at all. So why on earth would uh, Robert Morris have a sermon entitled, so what's, a, what's so important about worship, and have as his primary text, Exodus chapter 3? The answer to the question is this. Robert Morris does not know how to rightly handle God's word, and he sees things in the scripture that are not there. And so what you're going to hear is a complete twisting and a mangling of Exodus chapter 3 in order for Robert Morris to teach his theology under the guise of biblical teaching. This is a ruse that you're going to hear. He's opening up, he's having people open up their Bibles, but he's taking them to a passage that has nothing to do with worship to teach something about worship. In other words, what you're going to hear the theology taught in this sermon this is not biblical theology, and this is not biblical teaching that you're about to hear. Notes, write it down if you're not taking notes. 
write it down. What's so important about worship? I got extremely burdened about this uh, during my study time. Even though I was studying about the afterlife and all, I got so burdened about this because I wonder how many of us come for the singing and completely miss what the first part of our service is about and not really understand about worship. If I enter in during worship, and let me say something, there, there can be two people standing beside each other in the same worship service and one be in the Holy of Holies and the other be thinking about a business meeting he has next week and totally miss. One person can have an encounter with God and say, wasn't that worship incredible today? And so he's going to answer the question, how come you have different results? Results may vary when you enter uh, these, um, this, the Gateway Church there in South Lake, Texas, and some people have entered the Holy of Holies while other people have not. Why is that so? Apparently Exodus chapter 3 gives us the reason for this. No, it doesn't. And the other person say, well, yeah, I was okay. It's absolutely amazing to me. Let me say this when I talk about this. Every time I enter in, enter into God's presence, God speaks. I've never entered his presence where I... Every time I enter into God's presence, God speaks. Hmm. Well, this is a problem. I haven't heard God speak to my heart. And I want every person to understand that. As a matter of fact, I was thinking of the scripture, Revelation, just stay in Exodus 3, but Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, this very famous verse, if anyone hears my... Taken out of context. ...my voice and opens the door, I will... Go and read it in context. ...come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, very important verse, we quote it a lot, we use it in evangelism, but we basically talk about Jesus wants to come into your heart. He wants to come in, make his abode with you, he wants to live within you by his Holy Spirit. I understand that. But why did he say... Okay, hang on. We, we've got to take a look at this. This is going to drive me nuts. If you have your Bible, go ahead and flip on over to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Revelation, chapter 3. Let me... Uh, I think this is the, uh, the, epistle, uh, the, the epistle to Jesus to the, um, the, is it the church in Laodicea. Hang on a second here. Ah, uh, yes, here we go. Uh, here we go. Uh, Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14. Um, a harshly written letter... Uh, recorded, literally taken down by dictation uh, from Jesus by the Apostle John, and you know, and specifically to the churches in Laodicea. Read this not too long ago, but let me uh, let me read this again. Uh, verse fourteen, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works; you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is Jesus talking, by the way. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing but realizing, but not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy gold from me refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, by the way, historically, you got to understand this about the uh, about Laodicea. Laodicea in ancient times, at the time that this letter was written by Jesus to these people, 
Uh, Laodicea was a wealthy, wealthy uh, resort town, famous for its hot springs and also famous for a, a, a you know like a medical pharmaceutical company, you know, kind of the ancient world's version of it uh, that made ointment for the eyes. Uh, and, and you know, and so the people there were very prosperous. Resort town with a with a well, the ancient version of a pharmaceutical company in town. I mean, these folks had it going for them, and Jesus is not thrilled with them at all. If this sounds a lot like, well, the United States to you, (laughs) there's some comparisons that can be made. So Jesus is writing to the angel or the messenger, uh, you can even say the pastor of the church of Laodicea, okay? So, and Jesus here is playing on words, okay? So it says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, Okay, you're not rich. You're poor. Yeah, forget about your pharmaceutical company that makes eye salve. Uh, you're blind and you're naked. Yeah, you know, Jesus is just hitting them hard where it counts. Why? He wants them to repent and be forgiven. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. Now, everybody quotes this verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him. This has nothing to do with evangelism. I mean, here's the word picture, if you would. Jesus is writing a letter to a church, okay? To a church, a church that it's supposed to be uh, well, you know, a place where his word is is being preached, where he is supposed to be king. And Jesus is saying, behold, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. You get it now? How ridiculous is, is, is it that the king of kings and lord of lords is standing outside of a church knocking? Hello? Hi, this is Jesus. I'm knocking on the on the door of your church, not your heart, the door of your church. Let me in. How silly that Jesus is standing outside of this church knocking, asking to be let in. That's how ridiculous the you know things had gotten in Laodicea. So Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, Now, notice by uh, Robert Smith taking this out of context, he's going to make it, I don't know what he's going to make it say, but it ain't going to be what it says in context, that's for sure. Stay and dine with you. And I think it has to do with the fellowship, the intimacy that God wants to have with us. But here's what I'd like to say. When we come to church, we get very excited about the Word, and that's fine. That's good. That's not a bad thing. We love to be fed the Word of God. We bring our Bibles to church, and we love to be fed the Word of God. That's wonderful. But here's what I think many people are missing. It's not just about what we're eating, but with whom we're eating. And that's what church is. Church is not just that we get a good meal, but that Jesus is the one sitting across the table from us. And I think many, many people see 
the message as the entree and the singing as the appetizer or the warm-up. And that's just not true. So I, I want to help us understand, and I want to give you... Th- so this is your theory, and you're going to disprove this using Exodus chapter 3. Really? Three simple words when you think about worship, all right? These will be my three points, but if you want to get, go ahead and write them down, you can, all right? Here are the three simple words. Look, listen, and learn. Is this like stop, drop, and roll? Look, listen, and learn. We're gonna, we're, apparently, we're going to get this out of Exodus chapter 3. Look, listen, and learn. All right, here's number, uh, well, we'll get to number one in a moment. Let's read Exodus 3, all right? Verse 1. Most people know this as, as um, Moses having this encounter with God. Exodus 3, 1. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and, and most theologians believe when it says the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's talking about Jesus, and most versions will capitalize angel here, appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, notice Moses looked, and behold... Oh, for Pete's dragon, come on, seriously? So we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're now going to take a look. Okay, look, it says that Moses looked. So we, if we want to learn something about worship, that's what we got to do. We got to, we got to look. This isn't biblical exegesis going on here. This is ridiculous. Hold the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. And of course, this conversation goes on for two chapters, all of chapter three and all of chapter four. Now, so here's point number one, look. Point one. Look. Yeah, you got to do what Moses did. You need to look. And apparently this has something to do with uh, worship. So apparently the reason why the Holy Spirit inspired Exodus chapter 3 to be written is so that you could key in on the fact that Moses looked. So you need to look. Unbelievable. Look. When I say the word look, I don't mean glance in God's direction when you come to church. When we begin to sing I want you to turn aside from whatever you've been doing or whatever you have to do this next week or even after the service and look at God. That's. Oh, man. Uh, Pack your bags. We are going on a full-blown guilt trip here. Yeah, well, see, when I'm talking about look, I'm not talking about just glancing. You need to stop what you're doing and you need to look. Is that the reason why Exodus 3 was it was written to browbeat you so that you when you come to church you look at God? The Exodus chapter 3 has nothing to do with worship. This is a complete misuse of this text. And notice all the law here. All law. It's a you got to 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 mhm why the songs we sing have to do with God's greatness, God's goodness, God's glory, God's attributes, because it's time for us to look at God, not glance, but look at God. And I want you to think about when I say look, let me give you another word. I, I'm going to give you a word for uh, worship 
that will help you probably more than any word I could give you. It's the word focus. The reason here at the South Lake campus just a moment ago, we, we took communion and, and Pastor Zach said to us, even though we're getting ready for this and we're sitting down, I want you to remember we're still worshiping. And during that song, I don't know if you sensed it, but the presence of God came so strongly. Let me tell uh, really, you, that's what you sensed. How how do you know when the Spirit of God comes in? I mean, uh, does the lighting change? What do you sense it with? Um, with your skin? Do you get a liver shiver? I mean, how do you how do you intuitively know that apparently the presence of God just comes, you know, whisking in and and whisking out? How do you know? How do you know it's just not you know low blood sugar? Let me tell you why. Because many of us focused on God. We weren't focused. Oh, I see. See, what happened is, is that those people who focused on God, well, that proved to God that uh, that they were serious, and so they merited God's favor by their focus, and then God, the Holy Spirit, showed up. And of course, those people who were the ones focusing, they earned the right to feel God's presence, and they felt it. And the other folks who weren't focusing, they weren't looking, well, that they, they didn't feel it because they weren't worthy enough. They didn't show God that they were serious enough, so they might have missed it. Yeah, this is pure legalistic works righteousness, and it's a complete twisting of the Bible to boot. You should be suspicious of anybody who says that you've got to do something, and then when you do it, God will work. Because at that point, this just goes back to Roman Catholicism, you are earning or meriting God's favor and grace. On the elements coming by, we took that, we glanced at those, but we kept looking at God. We stayed focused on God. Let me say it another way. Let's not be ADD worshipers. Now, I, I can speak about this, and I've never wanted to say that I had it. I've never wanted to speak that over me. But uh, I, I will tell you this, uh, everyone around me knows that if you're not very interesting, I'm going to start looking somewhere else. But God is very interesting, if you'll look. I can remember we, had, we were having one of our children tested one time, and after he was tested, we went in and we met with a person, and literally this happened. My wife and my son can testify to this. They were there. We were in downtown Fort Worth. We were sitting in, a, in about the fifth floor of a building, and right out the window was the Trinity River. And the person said to me who did the test, is there any history of ADD in your family? And I said, look, that guy just caught a fish. (laughs) She said, I'll take that as a yes. (laughs) Stay in Exodus 3. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, but we all with unveiled Face and the veil is taken off in Christ, we're told. When you become a believer, the veil comes off. Beholding as in a mirror, remember the word mirror, the glory of the Lord or the presence, the manifest presence of God are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, think about when you look in a mirror, and I know sometimes you say, no, I just glance at mirrors. I don't like to look intently. But most of the time we look intently because we're trying to fix some things in us. We're trying to change the reflection of what we see into what we want it to be for that day. That's the same way if we will come and look 
at the glory of God, the manifest presence of God, we literally will be changed. There are two places I've seen that we change more than anything. If we then, if then, this is all law, this is all law talk, and what does it assume? There's certain things you have to do to merit God's favor and blessings, and when you do them, God in a cosmic quid pro quo moves on your behalf to you know to uh, you know to bless you because you are being obedient. Yeah, the problem is is that the the book of Galatians contradicts this straight up. This is flat out contradicted by uh, the book of Galatians. If you have your Bible, let's take a look at Galatians. I don't know if I'm going to get to the Al Berry thing now because I'm, I'm you know. I think it's important we get the biblical basis uh, for why this is wrong. Now, I'm not going to read the whole book of Galatians, but we're going to spend uh, quite a bit of time in here. Now, the book of Galatians, written by the Apostle Paul against the Judaizers, okay? These were people who came in and said, listen, Paul didn't tell you the truth. Come on, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone? No, 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 no. You're not saved, you Gentile Christians, unless you agree to be circumcised, Okay. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. We'll do a little synopsis work here. Paul writes and kind of sets the tone here. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So that sets the tone. They're they're following falling for a false gospel. It is a false gospel of works, okay? You have to do this in order to really, truly be saved. Paul then goes on to point out the fact that the gospel that he received, he didn't receive it from human beings. He received it from Jesus himself, and that he even basically rebuked Peter to his face because some of his actions were not in keeping with the biblical gospel, with the true gospel, okay? So, um, yeah, that's where he goes from there. So we're going to fast forward to Galatians Chapter 2, verse 17. This is where we're going to pick up the rest of this. Paul writes, But if in our if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? or by hearing with faith. Now, no, this is important to what I'm saying here. Notice what he's saying here. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Did we not just hear Robert Morris say that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was present there in their congregation specifically because people in the congregation were appropriately focused on God? And because they were focused, the Holy Spirit showed up. What Robert Morris said is 180 degrees backwards and opposite of what the Apostle Paul here is saying. Here's a, Let me read it again. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer is hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Robert Morris's God is a false God. Robert Morris's God works off of the quid pro quo. You do what's required, then the Spirit shows up. According to the Apostle Paul, though, Christianity teaches that we receive our gifts by grace through faith. God giving us repentance and faith and trust in him, and that the Spirit works because we believe God not because we do particular things. Robert Morris has turned this all on his head. In fact, he's teaching a 21st century American version of the Galatian heresy, flat out, straight up. Anything. The Bible calls the glory of God, beholding his glory, which is worship, and, and the word of God a mirror. I'm telling you, when you look intently at the word and when you look intently during worship, you're changed into his presence more than any other time that I know of. I had this happen these last two weeks. Last weekend, I spoke for Pastor Jimmy Evans, the week before Pastor Chris Hodges, because those were study breaks, you know. And I was preparing to come back, but I could go and speak in other churches on the weekend. When I was at uh, Pastor Chris's uh, church, Chris Hodges, if you remember, I told you we we bought a new home and we're in the process of selling our our other home. And uh, we got up that morning and I had an email that the contract had fallen through on Sunday morning, and I was going to preach. And I went in, and it was during worship, and I kept thinking about, okay, what are we going to do? What, do we regroup? Do we lower the price? And I kept thinking about these things. And while I was thinking about the Lord, and sometimes the Lord is strong with me, the Lord said to me, stop it. Listen to what he just said. Sometimes the Lord is strong with me. Is, is that like Luke Skywalker? The force is strong with this one. Notice how he's puffing himself up. That's the way of the law. When it's that's the way of self-righteousness under the law. Oh, well, sometimes the Lord is really strong with me. And look at the Lord speaks to him directly. Okay. Let me read to you Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and being puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Yeah, when you got a pastor who's sitting here preaching apparently his ongoing inner dialogue with God 
and as if that's actually what it means to preach the word of God, we've got a big problem. Big, big problem. Not only is he preaching a false gospel, he's delusional, thinking that he's actually talking to God. And there's no reason to believe he's not, that he is talking to God. Why? Because he's preaching pure works righteousness. Look at me. Just like that. Stop it. Look at me. And I began to worship God and set my focus on him. And listen, everything changed. All of a sudden, it was like, why am I even thinking about this? It is not my responsibility to sell my home. I can't do anything about it except what you tell me to do. It's yours. And I said, Lord, and my whole perspective changed. And that's when the Lord spoke to me to share on this because I thought to myself, how many of our people come in burdened and weighed down and don't really focus on God? And yet they sit through the song service waiting for the meal when the meal's right in front of them. All right, so number one, look. Number two, listen. Verse four in Exodus three says, so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Listen, God was waiting until he had his attention to speak. I, when, when my children were, were young, I used to say to them, look at me, look at me. And then I would give them instructions because I knew if they weren't looking at me, they weren't focusing on me. I wonder if all of us that want to hear God and need a word from God about our family, our business, our health, whatever it is, we need to hear God. I wonder if God's waiting to speak until we look. When God saw. Man, I, this is this driving me nuts. Let me read again. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify and declare righteous the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and continue to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree." so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Are you hearing faith being preached, or are you hearing works and law being preached? That he turned aside from what he was doing, and look, then God spoke. I'm telling you, God wants to speak to you. It is amazing to me... He wants to speak to you, but yeah, you better, you, he's, he can't do it. He's just waiting for you to get focused. 
you you got some work to do. I, God wants to say something, but apparently he can't until you look and listen. How much we want to hear God's voice, yet how little time we spend in his presence. Because it's in his presence that he speaks. Let me show you a few verses about his presence. Psalm 100 verse 2, come before his presence with singing. So it is very important that we do sing, whether you have a good voice or not. That's not important. It is important. I'm going to stop. I'm going to read all of Psalm 100 here. Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, that he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Notice that he just took that verse out of context, you know, enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise, and turned it into law, yet Psalm 100, that was all of it, by the way, gives us the context for why we should give thanks and praise, because he's steadfast and he's loving and his love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations, and that he made us, and we are his. Hmm. That we focus our heart. Uh, Psalm 9, verse 3, When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. Listen to me. The enemies that are coming against you, those spiritual wickedness in high places, is defeated by the presence of God. Yeah, that's not what Psalm 9 says either. Let's read Psalm 9. I mean, it's a great psalm. Um, Psalm 9, uh, verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds, and I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and they perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out, and the very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of of trouble. For those who know your name, they put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion, Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all of your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk into the pit that they have made, In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. 
For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord, let the nations know that they are but men. Yeah, you'll notice that uh, all this thanksgiving has to do with what God has done for us. Hmm. Weird. I mean, these psalms are psalms of faith. They're not teaching precepts that, you know, hey, if you apply this thing, then this thing will happen. Weird that faith is missing from Robert Morris's preaching, and yet he's supposed to be a Christian pastor. You'd be surprised how many victories you could win in your life if you just enter God's presence and let God take care of them. Uh, Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 68, 8, the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God. Let me tell you two things about that verse. Blessings come from his presence and mountains move by his presence. Notice what he's doing here. All of these verses are just ripped out of context and strung together with a narrative that he's created, a narrative of self-righteousness and a quid pro quo. Yet when you put them when you put these all back into context, they don't say the things that he's saying that they say. Gotta be careful. Gotta be careful when you take verses out of context. Really careful. Blessings come by his presence and mountains move. By the way, let's pray for rain. Because it's spiritual. We're in a drought. We're in a drought spiritually in our country. We're in a drought economically. Now we're in a physical drought. First the spiritual, then the natural. So I want us to go to war for prayer. How many of you will agree with me? Will you go? Let's pray. Let's pray for rain, spiritual and natural rain, all right? And then Acts 3.19 says, times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. Pretty self-explanatory. We always be notice all of these verses. I mean, it's like it's like the Bible was written Chicken McNugget style. You just rip a you know here's a here's a Bible nugget. Here's a Bible nugget. Here's a the Bible was not meant to be uh, taught this way. Begin elders meeting with worship. Always this last Tuesday was our elders meeting. We worshipped. We just spent time in in the presence of the Lord, and the Lord just showed up, and we must have sat for. Long time. I was looking for a time, minute or so, an estimate. 20 or 30 minutes. That's why I was thinking 30 minutes. I didn't want to exaggerate, but we probably sat 30 minutes in the prayer without saying a word, without anybody praying, because normally we go into prayer. So apparently God showed up because they were faithful enough. Uh huh. But his presence was so strong. And as we began to go around the room, it was amazing how God spoke different things to each of us. So come into his presence if you want to hear his voice. If you want, look. Focus, listen, and then here's number three, learn. Remember God said, take your sandals off for the place where you stand is holy. Let me tell you the first thing you learned. Anything God touches is holy. (laughs) That's the first thing you learned. But he learned a whole lot more than that. It wasn't just these two chapters talking to God. Moses continued to talk to God. Do you know, do you realize Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament of the Bible? Did you realize that? Do you know though when Exodus 3 happened? It was 2,500 years after creation. Think about this. It's been 2,000 years since the time of Christ. It was longer than that. 2,500 years after creation comes Exodus 3. Okay, how could Moses write the first five books of the Bible other than God taught him? 
How could he write about Adam and Eve? How could he write about the seven days of creation? How could he write about Abraham? How could he write about Noah? How could he write about all that? Other than he spent time in the presence of God. Psalm 103 verse 7 says, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. Do you see what the difference there? He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. Let me say it another way. He made known what he did to Israel, to the children of Israel. He made known why he did it to Moses. And by the way, you say, well, Moses was special. No, God said, let all the people come up to the mountain. Let all the people come. And you know what the people said? No, 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 you go up. You go tell us what he's saying. And that's what people do today. Pastor, you, you go and tell us what God's saying. When God is saying, no, you can come too. You can come too. Let me read you another scripture, and then I'll get to Psalm 73 after this if you want to go ahead and flip over. But if you're flipping, don't, don't uh, miss what I'm about to show you, okay? You can see it on the screen here. Exodus 33, verse 7. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass, now watch this, that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. And so it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. I believe that's where he taught him a lot of what he, he, he understood about the past. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshiped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, which would be son of nobody, <clears throat> I'm just joking, a young man did not depart from the tabernacle. A couple of things just mentioned. Joshua knew if there's a wisp of that cloud left, I'm staying here. I want what he's got. Second thing, it says that God spoke to Moses as with a friend, and Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants. From now on, I call you friends, for servants do not know what their master is going to do. Implying, but you know, I want to tell you, I want to be your friend. All right, now go to Psalm 73. And um, it's a long passage, but I really want us to read it uh, because I think it's so important, this truth here. Psalm 73. I should have put a marker over there like I told you to, but I was talking. All right, to you. All right, Psalm 73, verse 1. <clears throat> Truly God is good to Israel. This is David talking. To such as are pure in heart, but as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, let's just stop for just a minute. Anybody relate to that? You ever seen the prosperity of someone else and it kind of, you know, envy rises up? All right, this David's talking now. For there are no pangs in their death. Now, obviously there are, but he's, he's now saying my perspective had gotten off. That's what he's saying. But their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. 
They have more than heart their heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. I, I don't really have time to go into all this. I just want you to notice he's, he's got his perspective off. And they say, how does God know? There's no knowledge in the most high. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain. We felt this way before. And washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. In other words, they're doing great, but I'm having problems. And I'm serving God. And then he said, now if I had said this, I will speak this out. Behold, I would speak, be untrue to the generation of your children. Watch verse 16 and 17. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I understand, understood their end. And then he goes on to talk about the judgment that will come on the wicked. Okay, here, here's his point. Every one of us here can relate to this. Here, God, I'm serving you. And I'm having problems, and this guy, he's not serving you, and he's proud, and he's arrogant, and he says, there's no God, and look what, look how he's doing. It's just, it's just vain for me to serve you. I mean, why am I even, anyone had this? He said, and then when I thought about, now how, how do I explain this, that the godly are having problems and the ungodly are, are, are prospering? How do I explain this? And here's what he said. I couldn't understand it until, until I went into the sanctuary, <laughs> and then I understood Listen, your perspective has changed in the presence of God. When you come into the presence of God, everything will change. Now, I want to tell you an example of this. Um, <clears throat> Debbie and I, um, even though we grew up same town, went to the same church, she got saved at nine, I got saved at Okay, now watch. <clears throat> at this point, he's trying to make uh, some kind of principles uh, coming out of that psalm, but... See, if you go into the into the presence of the Lord, then everything will make sense. That's the principle. You got to do the same thing that David did, and then it'll all make sense to you. And now we're steering into personal experience, being preached as if as if it's normative, uh, and and the Word of God every bit as much as well the Bible. You're listening. At nineteen, uh, I got off the track. You know, my parents know this. I got way off the track. And um, uh, Debbie and I, we were, even though we went to the same school and all, we really didn't know each other. She, she knew of me because of my bad reputation, you know. Uh, but I didn't really know her. She was a goody-goody. I was a baddie-baddie. <clears throat> and when I got saved at 19, I just, I mean, I just fell in love with Jesus. And uh, just, just unbelievable. Well, she was saved. You know, I was delivered from drugs. She was delivered from you know, bubble gum, you know. And she looked at my life, and here's what she thought. She thought, you know, I can never love Jesus as much as Robert does. That's what the enemy told her. Because people who are saved out of that bad lifestyle, boy, they seem to just really love God. And I don't have that type of testimony. And I, you know, he just, he's just on fire for God. I could never be on fire for God like him. I could never love Jesus like him because I just wasn't that bad. And during worship one time, during worship, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but sometimes during worship, y'all just kneel down. And she just knelt down, and she was just saying, God, I want to love you like Robert loves you. I want to love you like Robert loves you. And all of a sudden, she saw a vision, 
And God wants to do this. He does it all through the word. So apparently God wants you to have a vision too, but you've got to, oh man, here we go. Wasn't mystical. She just saw in her mind and she saw herself in a white wedding dress. And she looked up and she saw Jesus and she knew she was the bride of Christ. And she started walking toward him. And then I thought the church was the bride of Christ. Oh, sorry. I'm letting the Bible get in the way of a vision. I mean, who am I to critique a vision? I mean, that's somebody's experience. That has to be from God, right? Just like Gene Robinson. He knew it was God who was telling him to come out of the closet and that God helped him as the one of the first openly gay people in the church. God was there helping him all the way. Same thing. And she started running toward him, and all of a sudden, she stepped in a mud hole and fell down in this mud and water, muddy water, you know, and it just covered her. And as she looked, she was completely covered with mud. And her, her arms, the whole wet dress, her hair, even all, all on her back, there was not a, you couldn't see her, her, her skin or her dress anywhere. It was all mud. And she said, I just began to cry. I'm so dirty. I'm so dirty. And when she thought that, the Lord began to just show her in her life sins, bad attitudes, rebellion, things that she hadn't thought much of. And she began to feel so sinful. Now, I just let me take a little sidebar and tell you just, you know, something that uh, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I need to tell you. You got to remember, when I married her, I mean, I just... I just felt so bad. It took me a long time to pray in front of her, you know, because, I mean, who wants to pray in front of, you know, Mother Teresa, you know? So, and I knew she is bad, and I was, I mean, I was bad, and she is good. I just knew that, you know? So, so she's telling me this. She said, and God just showed me all this dirty sin in my life, and I'm sorry, but I said, like what? I mean, you know, I'm... I didn't think you had any. I want some, I want the dirt, you know, so I didn't tell her that, but I, well, well like, what, what, what did the Lord show you, sugar? You know, I just wanted to, you know, and she said, well, mostly it was attitudes. Said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, come on. Give me something else, you know? So she said, well, she said there was, there was one time and I thought, okay, you know, and she said, this was, she said, when God showed me this, she said, I just, I couldn't believe that I did this. And I thought, what'd you do? She said, well, she said, you remember in school, we had notebook paper in, in a three-ring binder, and it had, you know, three holes in the notebook paper, and if, if one of the holes ever tore, you know, you could go to the store, and there was a little package of, like, little white holes, you know what I'm talking about, that you could stick on the paper to, you know, fix it, you know. And she said, I had one piece of paper where one of the holes had torn out. And so we went to the store, and I asked my mother, I said, would you buy these? And my mother said, you know, you just got one. I mean, I can, you know, we'll put tape on it. You know, that's Texas. You know, I got duct tape fixed that right up, you know. <laughs> so and I'm sure her mother meant, you know, clear, you know, tape, whatever. But anyway, she said, when my mother wasn't looking, I took one out of the package. Can I tell you how disappointed I was? <laughs> That's the worst thing she ever did. I mean, I robbed the store, you know. I mean, they they didn't just steal one. Come on. All right, so anyway, let me go back. So anyway. Um, Yeah, I think you need to go through the Ten Commandments again. um, Because uh, 
every second that ticks off that you do not love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength, you are sinning against God and you are an idolater. Notice the light treatment of sin here. She's in her vision. Hope I didn't spoil the moment, but she, she, but she realized how sinful she was. And you know, all of us know that the attitudes, the bitterness sometimes, the, the the rebellion in our heart. And she just knew she was dirty. She was just, and she here's what she realized: I was as bad as Robert. I was just as bad in my heart. And all of a sudden, she saw two feet standing in front of her with holes in them. Notice again, he's preaching a personal vision as if it's the Word of God. But what she remembered most was there was no mud on those feet, but he was standing in the mud puddle. You realize this is the gospel. No, the gospel is Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins and raised again on the third day for our justification. That we are saved by by grace through faith in Christ alone. You've been preaching nothing but law this entire sermon. And this personal vision does not, does not equate with the gospel. It's, it's even fraught with problems, big ones. That he came to us yet without dirt, without sin. No, it's not that he just came to us without sin. It's that his sinlessness is given to us as a gift from God himself. God sees us as righteous because we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. She looked up and he was completely white, robe white, and he no, no, no mud on him anywhere. And he put his hand out like this. And when she put her hand in his hand, the mud just began to go away. All over, completely clean. And as she lifted her up and she stood up, she looked down, the mud went away. And the mud turned into gold. And she began to dance with her groom. That happened during the singing. Yeah, because, yeah, see, God wants to talk to you during, you know, man. And she's never been the same. I'm telling you, please, I want you not just to think we have a good band, but I want you to enter into his presence and let him speak something to you every time we come together. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Done. Yeah, it even ends on a law note. Wow. Self-righteousness mixed with visions and dreams. That's a formula for disaster spiritually. This is the kind of preaching that sends people to hell. We preach the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God imputed to us by grace through faith. Big difference. And we don't need to twist God's word to get that message out because that's what God's word says when you read it in context. Yep. Wow. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback, by the way. You know, I'm always soliciting it. Do you, do you think that, uh, that God will uh, show up if you do the right things? 
Is that is that the Christianity you've been taught? That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches something completely different. That God is the one who saves us. And God doesn't need us to serve him. Instead, God serves us through his word, through his sacraments. And he calls us to believe him, to have faith and trust in him. He doesn't work off the cosmic quid pro quo. Because, not in our case, because God has met the, the requirements of the quid pro quo all for us in Christ. And his righteousness is given to you as a gift. You cannot add to this. Sad, sad, sad. You can email me, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.